0: The following data in this episode was accurate as of April 16th, 2021, upon the recording and publishing of this podcast. Hi there, welcome to our medical series called to care by Sanford Health. I'm your host, Courtney Collin with Sanford Health News. Call to Care brings forward medical experts who can give fellow clinicians some advice and guidance that they can use in their primary care practice and more information about when it's time to refer patients and families to more specialized care. Joining me for these conversations is Dr. Joseph Sejlon, who is Vice President and Medical Officer for Sanford Children's Hospital and a leader in pediatric critical care. But he's here to help us dive even deeper into these topics to provide the best insight and care for our patients and communities. Welcome, Dr. Sejlan. Good to have you.
1: it's great to be here, wonderful to see you again.
0: We are talking about infertility and raising awareness about the challenges a lot of couples face when trying to start or grow their family, and more specifically, referring to a fertility specialist and the patient's journey from there. Dr. Keith Hansen specializes in reproductive endocrinology at the Sanford Health Fertility and Reproductive Medicine Clinic in Sioux Falls. We're happy to have you, Dr. Hansen. Welcome.
2: Thank you, and thanks for having me, Courtney. It's a pleasure. Uh, Hi, Dr. Hanson. It's good to see you
1: again. Uh, Wonderful having you here, and I know our providers are quite excited to to hear about the information that you have to offer.
2: And it's nice to see you again, Dr. Sejalan.
1: Just to start off, reproductive endocrinology, give us a little idea of um, your background and the training that goes into becoming a reproductive endocrinologist.
2: Sure. Basically, the um, training to be a, a reproductive endocrinologist Usually you do an obstetrics and gynecology residency, and then we do a three years of um, fellowship training at one of the fellowships throughout the country. Um, there's another um, way you can also approach it through internal medicine, and then do another three years of fellowship in reproductive endocrinology. But most people go through it the OB-GYN route.
0: According to the National Infertility Association, infertility is increasing and right now one in eight couples are having trouble achieving pregnancy, whether it's their first, third, or fourth child. Is there any rhyme or reason why so many couples are facing these challenges?
2: You're exactly right that there is a you know a large percentage of couples who have difficulty either getting pregnant the first time or after that. There's you know there's a lot of theories on why it may be um, why we may be seeing more couples with infertility over time? Is it just the more it's becoming more aware and people are seeking care for it? That's one possibility. Is it the fact that women are um, delaying childbirth so they can get into their professional lives and continue to, pra- you know, to get their practices or their other um, jobs more well situated and get started in that area before they try to get pregnant? Is there changes in um, male um, fertility that's occurring? I mean, there's a lot of studies going on looking at, you know, is there a lowering of the total sperm count over time in males and other potential factors that may be impacting a couple's ability to conceive? And j-
1: just to, to level set for the pediatrician in the room, we define you would define
2: infertility as That's a great question. Infertility is for a woman under the age of 35, we um, define it as the inability to conceive for at least one year of trying of, you know, unprotected intercourse. However, we do, the definition changes when the woman is over the age of 35. Then we like to, if they have not conceived after six months of trying to conceive, then we want to see them for evaluating um, fertility, mainly because of the effects that age have on ovarian function, we also do want to see couples like if there 's some history that suggests that they might have trouble getting pregnant, like if a w- young woman stops her birth control pills and has no menstrual cycles, so she 's obvi- because of that we know that she 's not ovulating. We want to get her in as soon as possible so we can figure out why she's not ovulating and get her on medications to help her ovulate so she can get pregnant. If there's a history, like if the male has had a history of chemotherapy for cancer, we want to get him in so we can evaluate the sperm count and make sure that there's adequate levels of sperm so that they can get pregnant. Or if there's some other history that might suggest an infertility problem, we want to see them earlier rather than later.
1: Great, thank you. And so I'm, I'm thinking that most patients come to you after some time in their primary care provider and they've discussed this issue or they've brought it up. If I'm, uh, for our primary care providers who are listening, are there, um, are there groups of patients to refer to you? And is there anything as a primary care provider that I should do with regards to a workup, treatment, or, or counseling prior to referring to a reproductive endocrinologist.
2: It is nice when the primary care provider you know, really sits down with a couple and evaluates them in terms of a history and physical examination, especially looking for diseases that might impact pregnancy or their ability to get pregnant, as well as a family history trying to determine are they at high risk for any sort of genetic illness that could be passed on to the, to the baby. Because if that's the case, then we need to know about that. Um, I think from a primary care provider, one of the things, you know, we really kind of divide infertility into three major groups. One is the male. Um, And so it's important to know, you know, what is his history? Has he had any history of pubertal abnormalities? Has he ever been on steroid hormones? That's, you know, because steroids can suppress the testicle. Um, especially testosterone therapy is bad for sperm counts. Um, and can he has he ever had any other history that would suggest a problem with sperm, including using tobacco? Tobacco is b- very bad for sperm. Both smoking and, and chewing tobacco is really bad. Um, and so we really like those guys to get off of the tobacco products. And then one thing they could do is get a semen analysis And let us, you know, figure out does the guy have a normal sperm count? Does he have a good motility? And what does the sperm morphology look like? So that, you know, can be sort of a basic understanding of the guy. Um, The other area is looking at the woman. And the best indicator we have of how good her ovary is working is her history of her menstrual cycles, like if a gal come hopefully she's had a normal age of onset of her menstrual cycles of menarche and then if she, if she's having regular periods every 28 30 days she can tell when they're coming she tells when she ovulates those gals you know are pretty sure that they're ovulating um and so it's good to know that they're you know that that's going on that they're having regular ovulatory cycles the other, the thing that we like to evaluate, especially if the woman is over 35, is how good are those how ovarian function, and the way we do that is with what's called an anti malarian hormone, also known as AMH, and if that is suppressed, then that's a sign that her ovaries are starting to go through dysfunction, like. And the most common one is menopause. Menopause causes a very, very low AMH level, undetectable. So we're worrying that they're starting to do that. The other thing we like to do is get a um, FSH, LH, and estradiol level when they're on day two, three, or four of their menstrual cycle. And then also at the same time get an ultrasound while they're on the the second, third, or fourth day of their cycle and get a good look at the uterus and look at their ovaries and count all the little follicles Mm -hmm. in their... And those three tests, the antral follicle count, the FSH-LH estradiol on day three, and the anti-mullerian hormone give us a really, really good idea Mm -hmm. about how good the ovaries are working.
1: And and are those, excuse me, Dr. Hansen, but are those tests that you would do or the tests that a primary care provider might do?
2: Either one. We get some primary care providers who do them, you know, all the time. I mean, we have some that are they, they automatically get those. We have others that just refer the patients here, and we're happy with either way. Um, the other test that's nice is a hysterosalpingogram, or HSG for short. That's where we go to x-ray, put a catheter in the uterus, inject contrast, and we get to see is the inside of the uterus normal and are both fallopian tubes open or not. And once again, that's a test that a lot of times the primary care doctors will send to us, and we'll do the test, but we do have some that are comfortable doing it, and that is wonderful if they're willing to do it. And then if they do do it, it's nice if they could, when they refer the patient to us, if they could just send us the films because it's nice to look at them and, and stuff. But a lot like to send us, and we, we're happy to see the patients and get them started.
1: Great. Thank you. And, and thanks also for, you know, when I do these podcasts, my goal is always to learn something, and I had no idea that tobacco – had an effect on sperm count. So that's, uh, that's my, my fact that I gained today. So thank you for that. I heard you mention family history a couple of times. Infertility, that runs in families?
2: Once again, that's a great question. Um, and yes, I mean, there are a couple of diseases that can result in infertility. One of them is endometriosis, which actually the very first studies that confirmed that it was familial in nature came out of Yankton, South Dakota. And so we actually were, the the state here was one of the first places to ever suggest that it was familial. And since then, we now know that it definitely has a familial history to it. Um, and also uterine fibroids can be more common in families, both of which can cause problems getting pregnant or staying pregnant. The other thing, though, one of the other reasons we ask family history is for birth effects, like if there's a family history of cystic fibrosis, spinal muscular atrophy, or one of the other genetic illnesses. Because if we know that a couple are carriers of a genetic disease, we can actually then test the embryo and make sure we can do in vitro fertilization, test the embryo and make sure it's normal before we put it back in. And we get referrals quite frequently where couples have had a baby with like cystic fibrosis or spinal muscular atrophy, and they come in and they want to prevent it from happening again, so then we're able to do that. We just, we get their blood, and it's fascinating. We send it to a lab, and they determine exactly where the mutation is, and then they develop primers around that. Then they have to develop primers along the allele so that they can tell that, you know, if that they actually have that allele or they don't. And so they, we can test the embryos and find one that doesn't have that disease, put it in, they can have a totally normal embryo. So that's why we ask the family history. And then we also ask them if they wanna be screened for a lot of these mutations, because we can do what's called the, it's called the council screen, the Terra screen, where what they do is they give a blood sample or saliva, we send it to a lab out in California, or there's other labs, but they just tell us if they're carry the most common mutations for cystic fibrosis, spinal musculotrophy, fragile X syndrome, and a whole bunch of other genetic illnesses, all of which, as you are aware, are very, very serious illnesses.
1: Interesting. This is fascinating. I didn't know any of this uh, before. I'm curious. We talked about family history, endometriosis. Is there any other groups of patients that you see more commonly? I, I, I guess what's coming to my
2: mind is polycystic ovary disease. Is that a population that you see? Yes, we see quite a bit of, of individuals with polycystic ovary syndrome. You know, those are the ones that come in with no menstrual cycles, and they're not ovulating, so we have to treat them with medications to help them ovulate. Um, we also see patients with tubal disease, either due to endometriosis or scar tissue from like a ruptured appendix or tuberculosis or gonorrhea, chlamydia, those kind, or major abdominal surgeries. We see a lot of male factor with guys that, you know, where the sperm counts are low, the motility is low, or the way that the sperm looks, the morphology is low. If the morphology is low, the sperm can have a real dickens of a time getting into the eggs. And
1: and just to be clear, you see both men and women in your practice?
2: Yes. Yep.
1: Okay. So thank you for that. I think we've got the patient now, we've got them worked up from the primary care, they're referred to you. And I know that there's a myriad of different pathways, but for for the, for the providers out, out uh, listening, what what's a typical journey look like through this process for for their patients?
2: Well, once again, like you said, I mean it depends a lot on what the definition is, but one good example is those with unexplained infertility. you know, the couple where you absolutely have no idea why they're not getting pregnant. They have open fallopian tubes. They're, she's ovulating every month, and the sperm count is totally normal. In that situation, a lot of times <clears throat> what we'll do is we'll treat them with like ovulation induction agents like clomiphene citrate, where we give them five days of the medicine to help them ovulate, to try to recruit more than one follicle, and then do what's called the intrauterine insemination, where <clears throat> what we do is we have the husband come in close to ovulation, and we get, he gives us a sample, we wash it, and then we put it right up inside the uterus, you know, to get them going in the right direction. They actually did a big study called the FASTER trial where they basically showed that the best, the, the most efficient way cost and cost-effective way to treat unexplained infertility is to do three cycles of Clomid and IUI, and if they aren't pregnant, move straight to in vitro fertilization, and you have the best chance of getting a successful pregnancy at the lowest cost for the couple. Um, other options, like for somebody with polycystic ovary syndrome, a lot of time we'll use ovulation induction agents, like letrozole is the most common one, which is also known as Femara. It's an aromatase inhibitor, and it's not been approved by the FDA for ovulation induction, but it works wonderfully, and especially in polycystic ovary syndrome, it works a little bit better than clomiphene does. And so we like to use that drug um, to help those people. In male factor, it depends on how severe the the problem is. If it's mild, many times we can do like Clomid or Clomiphene citrate and intrauterine insemination. If it's severe, then we're having to turn to things like um, in vitro fertilization with ICSI, where we go in under a big microscope, pick up a normal sperm, or the closest to normal we can find, and inject it into the egg or turn to things like donor sperm or donor embryos or adoption.
1: So just curious, you had said that uh, in the cases that you do not know the etiology for the infertility, what roughly what percentage of your practice is it unknown?
2: Probably about 10%. Okay. Yeah.
1: Thank you, thank you. Now, let's say um, the the couple are pregnant. Do you follow them then through their pregnancy?
2: Once a couple is pregnant, we usually follow them like for the first 12 weeks most primary care physicians and obgyns really wait to see the patient till around 10 to 12 weeks so what we do is we see them and then we tell them to call up and make an appointment with their primary care doctor or their obgyn doctor and then they can make their appointment and be seen by them and and get to get their care set up do you see them later in the pregnancy or just when they come back to show us, you know, like the little baby, hopefully, really or babies. I
1: I, I I did not know that. So. I bet you love Great. that.
2: Yeah, that's really fun when they bring the little babies back and show them off and stuff. And
1: that must be incredibly rewarding. Oh, it now, is. I know we've we've I've read before about the cost of infertility being a being something out there in the public eye. Um, can you expand on that a little bit, or what are the options?
2: You know the problem with infertility is, as many times it's not covered by insurance, so it's very similar to the cost of other medical care. You know, other surgical procedures and all of that. So, um, so but it is expensive. I mean, one's, if you go through in vitro fertilization, there's about a twelve to fifteen percent chance, or twelve to fifteen thousand dollars for that for from us, and then it's usually about three to five thousand dollars in medications. So it usually comes out probably about 18,000 by the time you're done, which, you know, is very similar to a lot of other medical procedures. We're hoping that we can slowly get it approved by insurance and, and hopefully at some point it'll be covered.
1: Anything else um, in the remaining minutes that we have that you'd want want the referring providers and the primary care providers listening to to know about your practice or about you?
2: We're very happy to see couples with infertility, and we're happy if they do part of the workup or if they want to refer them directly to us. We also see patients with recurrent pregnancy loss, which are sad cases where a woman has had two or more miscarriages, and we can work those up, and many times we can find something to help them with, which is nice. We also, you know, take care of transgender um, kids and adults, um, getting them on appropriate therapies. Um, and then I also take care of pediatric and adolescent gynecology too. So.
1: That sounds like your practice is incredibly varied and incredibly busy. so, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, so. I, and I know that the reproductive endocrinology is a fairly scarce resource. So um, for our listeners, how would we refer patients to you?
2: Well, you're right. I mean, there are very few of us in, around, but um, we're happy, to, you know, to take referrals directly from the primary care doctors, or we have patients well, who actually just call up and come in and see us. So, I mean, we're happy to see them whichever way they want to refer to us.
1: Well, wonderful. Uh, I can't thank you em- enough, Dr. Hansen. This was very enlightening, and it's always a pleasure talking to you. And I always learn something. And, Courtney, I'll send it back to you.
0: Dr. Sejlein, thank you. Dr. Hansen, thank you for being here and for all that you do at Sanford. Oh,
2: well, you're welcome. Thanks, Courtney.
0: Our Call to Care podcast series by providers for providers continues right here with our Sanford Health experts. I'm Courtney Collin. Thank you so much for being here. We'll see you soon.